All right, good morning, church. How are we doing? Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. I can always expect Jeff right here on the front row to be the loudest person always, and I appreciate that. Uh, and we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah today, so if you want to turn to Nehemiah 1, we're going to be continuing in our series, uh, Return, Rebuild, Renew, and we're going to see the next movement of this story, because really, Ezra and Nehemiah go together. And in the Hebrew Bible, they're not separated. And so really, this is a sequel and a picking up right where we left off uh, last week. And so let me remind you of kind of where we've been and kind of the movements uh, we've had through this series. Uh, First, we started out with a guy named Zerubbabel. So if you're looking to name your next kid, there's a good Old Testament name for you, Zerubbabel, right? Uh, So he come or he's inspired and he's stirred up in his heart to go back and to rebuild the temple uh, that God's people might be able to go back to the land that they were promised to be able to worship God, to be able to be the people of God in the world, that he would redeem them after these years of captivity and slavery to be able to go back and to worship him again, and that he is stirring it up, and he is bringing the people to this conclusion. So we see Zerubbabel, and uh, some of the people go back, and they start to rebuild, but in the midst of the rebuilding, they have opposition. They have opposition from the peoples of the land, and people that have rised up against them uh, to say, no, we're not going to allow you to rebuild, because we know how strong and awesome your God is, and if you rebuild this, uh, we might all be in trouble. And so they start to oppose them, and they go through these different various appeals to the king to remember what he had promised Zerubbabel and his people about rebuilding, and they go back and forth. And then during that time, we have the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and they're prophesying during this time. And when the people have kind of forgot about the rebuilding of the temple, and they're scared to do it and scared of what the kings might do to them, they call them back to the rebuilding process. Uh, We see that happen, and then we see Ezra finally show up on the scene. The book is named after him, right, Uh, in chapter 7. And so Ezra comes back in a second wave, and he comes back in the second wave, and his job is that he wants to renew the people of God spiritually. He wants to renew them spiritually. He wants to teach them the Torah law and that they might be able to worship again properly with the temple rebuilt, with qualified priests and Levites, and the people knowing God's word and knowing what he's calling them to do. And so he gets the people to that point. And that's what we saw uh, last week was then the response to covenant renewal, which is a hard thing that they did in the face of them breaking the law of God and dealing with the consequences thereof. So this week we see a third movement. We see Nehemiah coming, and he's coming with, a, with more people to be able to rebuild. And so he's coming, and his purpose this time is to rebuild the walls of the city that they might be Uh, fortified, that they might be safe, because right now the people in the rebuilding of the city, they have temple worship, they have the law, but yet they're still exposed to an attack and people coming after them. So this is what God puts in the heart of Nehemiah is to come back and rebuild the walls and make sure that the people are strong and provided for and protected. So this is where we find ourselves entering the story of Nehemiah. So let's read Nehemiah 1. Together, It'll be on the screen if you don't have a copy of Scripture or device in your hand. It says here in Nehemiah 1, starting verse 1, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, Now it happened in the month of Kisvil, in the twentieth year, I was in Sua, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken 
down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the Lord, or for the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who, keep, uh, who love him and keep his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commands and do them, though you are outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your power and your, by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. And then if we were to go a little further into Nehemiah 2, we'd see that Nehemiah being the cupbearer of the king has the king's ear uh, and he can see that he's distraught. He can see that he is burdened. And so he asks him, hey, what's, what's going on? What's, you're wearing it on your face. What's, what's wrong with you? And he says, you know, why would I not be in this kind of condition when I know the condition of the people and the condition of the land? And so then he puts before the king uh, the idea that God's put in his heart, the plan that he's called him to do to go rebuild the wall. And so this is where we find ourselves in the story. And really what I want to talk about today is some of the aspects of Nehemiah's prayer. Uh, there are some amazing aspects of his prayer here today that I think that we can learn from and be able to incorporate into our own prayer life, into the things the Lord is calling us to do. Before we get into those five aspects of the prayer, though, I'd like to draw your attention to uh, Nehemiah's motivation to pray. When we see he gets word that his people are, are distraught, they're exposed, it says that they are still, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, and the people are in great trouble and shame. And so what moves Nehemiah to this prayer, what moves him to action, is the brokenness of the people. The brokenness of his own people is burdening him so heavy that he sits and weeps. He sits and prays, and I want you to know that the time between, because it actually tells us there in the very beginning of Nehemiah 1 that it's in one month, and at Nehemiah 2 it's, it's another month, that span of time between chapter 1 and chapter 4 is four months. So there's four months from the time that Nehemiah hears the condition of the, of the city and the people and that he's broken for them and that he is uh, praying and fasting before the Lord for them, four months before he actually gets to the request to the king to go do this. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I don't like to wait on things. If I hear that there's a problem and it's burdening to me, I want to jump into action. But we see the action that Nehemiah jumps into is actually prayer. Prayer is action. That the first thing, because we're going to see throughout the book, this guy is very decisive, great leader, makes good decisions, moves quickly. And yet the first thing he does is pray for four months to be prepared for what God's calling him to. 
Because he knows that it's such a great call, that it's such a great thing the Lord is going to call him to, that he cannot do it without the Lord. He can't do it without the Lord making the way, preparing the people, giving him favor that it says there at the end. And so Nehemiah starts with this four months of prayer and fasting where he is going to reorientate himself to who God is, what he's done, and what he's calling Nehemiah to do. There's another interesting thing that's happening here. Not only is he praying, he's fasting. Now, fasting is a spiritual discipline. The Bible talks about it. Jesus talks about it in the Gospels. He says, when you fast, don't do it like the Pharisees, do it like this. But I got to ask us the question, when was the last time we fasted from anything? Because our culture right now, we're not encouraged to fast from anything. We're encouraged to overindulge. We're in, we actually think that the, the wrong, if you deny yourself of anything, that that's the wrong thing to be doing. And that we should just indulge in whatever we want all the time, 24-7. So fasting in our culture doesn't really exist. And I would say because it doesn't exist in the culture and how influenced we are by it, that even in our own lives, that fasting is probably not something that we put together with prayer. Or that we put together anytime. Uh, and so uh, something that's really helpful for me around fasting, because I, I know I at least do it one time a year, uh, because my wife and I about six years ago uh, started practicing Lent. And so Lent is a season that prepares you as you walk up to the death and resurrection of Jesus at Easter. Much like we do at our church during Advent, the weeks leading up to the birth of Jesus, other traditions uh, celebrate Lent in a time where they reflect upon their sin, they reflect upon their brokenness and what Christ has come to do about it. Now, I know when I bring that up that some people have a Catholic background and that that's hard. I'm not talking about uh, the way that they necessarily do it. I'm talking about a way that engages a time of reflection upon sin and not us, you know, adding to the grace of God by our sacrifices during those times or getting all of our sins out on Fat Tuesday or something like that. What what I'm talking about is a, a focused time of just reflecting upon who God is and what he's done about our sin, to ask him to search my heart and to know me. And that I might be able to be walking towards Easter, knowing the brokenness that I still have, that my need for the gospel, my need for Christ's death and resurrection, and that it's about his grace and his grace alone that I'm saved. And so during that time of Lent, there's also a time of fasting. So usually you pick something that you're going to fast from. Uh, for me, uh, this last time, it was social media and sweets. So I went with a double, a double time there. I, I, wanna, I, I just feel like one wasn't enough. So uh, I'm going to give up sweets, uh, which actually isn't that hard for me. I kind of did that with my wife. It's maybe a little harder for her. I, I think I could say that, right? And so... <laughs> You gotta ask permission while you're doing this, right? And so, and then social media, because let's be honest, social media is not the most encouraging place to be these days, is it? It used to be a time where you posted pictures of your food and your kids and your dog and, and stuff like that. Now it's become a, a place where we can, you know, just spout off about anything that we want to, and we're, it's not the most encouraging place to find ourselves. And so I took a break from that. And during those times where I would be maybe enjoying a dessert or, or having social media, uh, taking that time to replace it with the things of God, like prayer. I'm fasting from these things. I'm having times of prayer with God. I'm having focused times in God's word where I might have just been scrolling and scrolling for hours and hours. Now the, the goal is to replace it with these things. And so, but very likely, obviously, for Nehemiah, he's fasting from food. And another thing about fasting, what it brings upon us is the dependence that we have on whatever we're giving up is replaced with dependence upon the Lord. That we are saying, Lord, I need you so desperately 
that I am going to give up this thing that I also think I desperately need, and I'm going to replace it with something greater. And so he goes through this season of prayer and fasting for four months to be prepared and fashioned by the Lord for the action that he's going to call him to. And so he spends this time in prayer and fasting. What it actually does is shape him and reorientate him to God and what he's done and what he's going to do through him. So as we get to this, uh, we see five aspects of Nehemiah's prayer here uh, that I'd like to draw out. So the first one is this. Uh, The first thing that we see is adoration for who God is. The very first thing he does in his prayer in verse 5 is say, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. So there's an acknowledgement of who God is. He stops and he praises him and he worships him by saying, you are great and you are awesome. Those might be words that we just fly through in the moment, but those were meaningful things for Nehemiah. He's not just offering up this prayer with a bunch of words that are fancy or trying to impress God by saying, you're great and awesome, God. He's doing it because he really believes it. Or because at the moment he's struggling to believe it, right? I mean, he's hearing the condition of the people. It's, the city's still broken, still struggling. And yet in that moment, he's going to say, God is great and awesome, even when things aren't great and awesome in Israel. And I think that's important for us to do in prayers to start with adoration because it reorientates us to the God of the Bible, It reminds us that even in our present circumstances, which again, might not be great and awesome, that our God is great and awesome and he transcends the circumstances and the place that we find ourselves. And so a book that's been really helpful to me uh, with this subject of adoration and praising God for who he is, is this book right here called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And so um, a friend turned me on to this book back in December. And so I started to read it And I want to share, this is not going to be on the screen because I kind of did this last minute, so I'm sorry. You're going to have to follow a lengthy quote with me. Uh, But I'd like to read it because I think it really sets up the importance of reorientating ourselves to the God of the Bible, not a God we fashion after ourselves, or that we let our circumstances shape who God is. So he says this, the Christian life, from one angle, is a long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons, a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart for us is merciful merciful and gracious and slow to anger. So in this chapter, he's putting forth that at the deepest heart of who God is, it's out of Exodus 34, that the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. He says the fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched us in our own minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool towards him in the wake of it. I, don't, I mean, when I read that, I just put this book down. I found that deeply profound. And I think why I found it so moving in the moment was because back in December of this last year, this is where I was. I was allowing circumstances in my life. I was allowing the world around me, the place that we were finding ourselves in, to make me think that God was not the great and awesome God that he claims to be in the Bible. 
That his greatest heart to me isn't grace and mercy and love, but yet disappointment, maybe even condemnation and struggle. And so as I read this book, it started to reorientate me to the God of the Bible because I had started to follow a God and believe a God that was created after my, my own image. And so it's so important to have adoration as a part of our prayer because it reorientates us to God of the Bible and who he says that he is. So adoration is important for us because it can shape us about who God is, but it also shapes us and reminds us things about ourselves. And one of those things is this. When we adorn God for who he is, that he is great and awesome and powerful, we're reminded that we're not. We're not God. We're not God of our lives. We don't know the best for us. We can't provide all that we need for us. We are not self-sufficient. I think one of the lies we buy into and that culture feeds us is that we can be completely self-sufficient on our own. That everything I need for life is right here bound up in me and I've got all the gifts, all the things, all the abilities, and I've got, and I'm going to make them happen. But that is a lie that we buy from the enemy and we start to think that we are God of our lives and we are in control and that we, we think that we're self-sufficient, yet we are not. Another lie that we buy into when we don't adore God for who he is is that we can be completely autonomous. That we can be completely autonomous. That I don't need, not only do I have everything, what that also means is I don't need you. And I don't need God. Because I've got it all right here. And so then we buy into this lie of, of autonomy and think that I can do life on my own. But what was the one thing in the garden before the fall in the perfect place that was not good? You can interact with me if you want to. What was not good? To be alone. Thank you. My wife, Sunday school answer, right there on the front row. Uh, (laughs) I told her to say that. No, uh, well, yeah, it's not good for man to be alone. So he fashions for himself a helper uh, from his side who would walk side by side with him, wife, a woman. But also it's not good for us to be alone ourselves and that God himself exists in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we're invited into a relationship with God when we praise him for who he is that leads us to realize we're not self-sufficient, we're not autonomous, we're made for community, and we're made to be dependent upon God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't like to be dependent on anybody. But yet, the very heart of our relationship with God is a dependence upon him because of who he is and what he's done for us. And so starting in, in, a, in a praise for God for who he is reorientates us to God of the Bible, and it reminds us of these things. The second thing here we see in his prayers, adoration for what he has done. He starts out with adoration for what he's done. After he says that he's the great and awesome God, it says that he is a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he is reminding himself of what God has done. Not only who he is, great and awesome, but this is what a great and awesome God can do. He keeps covenant with those who are even unfaithful to him. And so what does that say about the heart of God even in that statement? That God is merciful, that he is gracious, that he is slow to anger. This is who our God is. And so he reminds himself, and it's encouragement to him, that God has delivered them in the past and that God will deliver them in the present. When we are reminded about who God is and what he's done on our behalf, it reminds us that the God who's delivered us back there in our past is the same God who can deliver us in our present. 
And so he is praying and reminding God, you are this type of God who keeps covenant love and steadfastness, who will renew his people, who will renew Nehemiah as he prepares for this action that the Lord's going to call him to. So we see adoration for God shapes us by a reminder that God works on our behalf. God works on our behalf. When we remember who God is and what he's done in our life, we can go back to situations and, and points in our life and we can remember how God provided. We can remember how God came through. And that is really encouraging when we find ourselves in a present place where we're wondering if he'll do it again. Where we find ourselves maybe even in the same situation, wondering if God will come through this time. And something that's really important to be reminded of is that he did it there and he'll do it again. We see this time and time again in the people of Israel. Uh, um, a reminder is a big deal and a big thing in the scripture. He's always calling his people to remember, always calling him to remember who he is and what he's done. You know, he has different markers in the life of the people to do that very thing. I and mean, the reason they celebrate the Passover is to be reminded how God brought him out of, Israel, brought him out of Egypt. They celebrated that as a people to remind themselves and to reorientate themselves to this awesome and powerful God who works in their life. And he did it when he delivered them from Egypt, and he'll do it again that year. It was a yearly festival that they celebrated. Also, we see in the book of Joshua, when they're crossing the Jordan into the promised land, and he's promising to give them this land and to defeat these people who are greater than them, they set stones of remembrance by the Jordan so that when they would come back to that place, they could remind their kids and grandkids who this awesome God is who brought them into this land. So reminders of what God has done, markers in our life are very important. And it reminds not only that God's going to work on our behalf, but our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. And so I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I need to be reminded of his faithfulness. I need to be reminded of his goodness. And something that I tend to do when I find myself in a current situation that I don't know if God's going to come through again, I'm struggling with it. I'm struggling to trust him with the situation. One of the things that I do is to go back and remember. And what's helpful for me to do that is to literally go back and write down the different times in my life where God was faithful. This is a really good exercise. Just to go back and write down all the times that he went, he's brought you through this, he's brought you through that. You thought there was no way and God made a way. And you know what that does in your present circumstance where you don't know if that's gonna happen again? It's super encouraging to remind you that God is faithful, he did it there, and he will do it again. And then we can pray to the God of this faithfulness, the God who, who can do it, to say, Lord, I know you did it back then. I'm struggling right now. Would you help me to believe you can do it once again? It's a super helpful thing in our life. And Nehemiah is doing this. Remember who you are, God. Remember what you're calling us to do. Restore your people. We believe in you. We want to trust in you, though it doesn't look great in our current circumstances. And I think one of the things that we have to remember as Christians, one of the things that we have to have at the center of our lives that we are the most thankful for is the promise of all promises, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to daily come back to the gospel in our life. That it wasn't just a moment in time that saved us, though it is that, but that's not all it is. That God delivered us and brought us into his family. He saved us by his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. And we placed our trust in him and we started to walk with him But as we walk with him, we've got to go back to the thing that saved us. 
We've got to go back to remembering the God that saved us and that he wants to do it again in our present life. He wants to save us and deliver us as we continue to root out sin in our life and we continue to follow after him. The gospel is something that we have to continually come back to. And when we come back to God's provision for our salvation, when we come back to the depths of his grace, when we come back to his love, you know what that does in our life? It creates a life of gratitude. A life of gratitude towards God for what he's done. When we are remembering Christ and all that he's done for us and we're living a life of gratitude, you know what's really hard to do? Be disgruntled. (laughs) To, To be discontent. To have no hope. When we come back to and adoring God for what he's done in our life, namely through the gospel, we are reminding ourselves of our need for God. We are reminding ourselves of his grace, his love, his provision, that he wants to do it not just then when he saved us, but he wants to do it in our present circumstances, and the gospel will eventually bring us home to the new heavens and new earth with him. So he moves on from this adoration for what God has done, and Nehemiah moves into a time of confession. He moves into a time of a confession of sin. We see it in verses 6 through 7, that he confesses day and night sins of the people, his own sins, the sins of his father's house. In confessing these different things, it is confessing before God our great need for him. He's confessing the sins of the people and throwing himself on the mercy seat of God to say, I know we haven't been faithful. I know we haven't kept your promises, but Lord, we desire to do that yet again. Would you forgive us of these sins, that we could be freed from these sins to be able to follow you again? Would you free us from these sins that we'd be able to walk with you daily? And so we see this confession of sin shapes us in such a way that we're we're really honest with who we are and our need for God. When's the last time you confessed the sin to the Lord? Or the Bible even calls us to confess sins to one another. Do you have people in your life that you're able to go to and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this sin. Will you come alongside me in prayer? Hey, I'm really struggling with this sin. Uh, you know, can I text you when I need help and to know that you'll be praying for me? And so we see him interceding for the people. We see him interceding for himself and throwing himself on the mercy seat of God, confessing sins, being honest with who we are and our great need for God. And what happens in that moment is that's exactly what God wants us to do. God wants us to come to him in repentance, confessing sin, because when we come to him confessing our sin and confessing uh, that we need him, that's what he wants to do in that moment is restore us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who have trusted in Christ, when we come to him with our sin and with our brokenness, we are met with mercy, love, and grace. Mercy and love and grace that renews us. And so confession of sin is very important because it restores us in relationship with God, and then it can also lead to restoration in relationships with others. When we come to people, when we confess sin, and we humble ourselves and say, I've sinned against you, I've done this, and I need your forgiveness, that we can hopefully have restorative relationships based upon the gospel. You know, I don't know if you know this, but this gathering of the church right here is a gathering of sinners in the need of grace. We're saints, no doubt, in the Lord. But we're still dealing with sin the side of heaven. And we are going to sin against each other in this church. It's just going to happen. And it's not a great thing. It's not an awesome thing. We wish it didn't exist. I wish it didn't exist, but we will. But what makes us different than the world is that because of Jesus Christ, his love and his mercy and how much we know we've been forgiven, that we can actually receive forgiveness from others. 
or we can extend forgiveness for others, and that this place would be markedly different in how we deal with sin and brokenness than the world around us. And that if we would be a church that could do that with one another, we'd be a beautiful picture of the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So confession of sin is important, but we also see that he's doing the job of intercessory prayer. We did that right here at the beginning of our service. You know, we interceded in prayer for the mission trip, and we're praying for you guys as you go and minister to the people in Ensenada. We were interceding with you, and hopefully we'll continue to do that during their trip. We also interceded for the people who find themselves in the hospital right now with COVID. Hey, I know exactly where you're at. I I was there. For a week that I spent in the hospital with COVID, not knowing if I would make it or not. And so just know that we are praying for you. We care about you. We are interceding for you even now. Even as I'm speaking, I'm interceding for you right now. And we're praying for our church family. But intercessory prayer is so important. So important. to, to I, When's the last time you shared a prayer request for somebody where they could intercede for you? Where they could be praying on your behalf and be able to encourage you? Uh, we need these people in our life. Uh, I know I talked about giving up social media, but I still like it sometimes. So when Facebook first came out, when you didn't have, remember that when you didn't have to have like a, because I was beyond college age and you had to have a college, a college email address to be able to do this, but then it opened up to the world. And so when it did that, you started reconnecting with people, obviously, from your past. And so one of the people that I was able to reconnect with early on Facebook was a guy named Jared Mott. And Jared Mott was a, was a youth helper in the youth group that I grew up in. And so the church that I grew up in, Jared was a helper. He was one of my group leaders. He took me on trips, all these different things. So we reconnected. And so you also listed your occupation on Facebook, and it said pastor. And he's like, holy cow, what, what happened in your life? <laughs> and so, because uh, I was not the greatest kid in high school. And so, and he knew me then. And so I, we exchanged numbers, uh, and I was able to call him. And just talk to him about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life and how he had saved me and how he had really brought me back to himself out of a really hard prodigal season in college. And you know what that guy went and did? He goes, hey, wait, just a second. He went and found a prayer book from 1998. The fall of 98 is when I went to Ole Miss. And I know you're like, that was your first mistake. Uh, I see a few of you. Y'all know. Y'all know. Uh, it was a hard place for me, guys. I was not in the right frame of mind. <laughs> Uh, to go there, and if you've been there, you know what I mean. But um, the Lord was really gracious in a very hard season to me there and called me out of there. Uh, not that there was anything wrong with that place, but I couldn't survive in that place. I needed to be in a different environment, and the Lord was working in my life. And so he went and got his prayer journal, and he said, this is what I was praying for you in the fall of 98, that the Lord would bring you back to him and do all these things. You never know who's praying for you. But I guarantee you, I would not be standing here today without the prayers of Jeremiah. I guarantee you, I wouldn't be standing here today without the prayers of the people in January of this year as you prayed for me as I fought COVID. We need people to intercede on our behalf. Next, we see him uh, bringing to remembrance the Lord, his promises, and he's praying the word of God back to him in verses 8 through 10 to remind him that if you said, God, if we, if we would turn back to you, that you would restore us. And the, the scripture that he's referring to in this prayer is Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 5, and it'll be up on the screen. And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and call, call them to mind among all the nations where, God, where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, 
you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord will restore your good fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from the peoples where God has scattered you. That was right there in his prayer. That if you are outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, he said that as well in this prayer. For there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land of your fathers possessed that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So Nehemiah, in the midst of his prayer, goes back and prays the word of the Lord to him. Remember this is who you are. Remember this is what you said. I'm claiming this promise of Scripture for me and my people that you promised us. And I think that's a great reminder to us that if we're struggling in our prayer life and we're struggling what to pray and what to do, a great place to start in prayer to God and remembering uh, his promises and reminding him of his faithfulness are the Psalms. The Psalms were the song book of God's people, but also the prayer book for God's people. But I know a lot of people who struggle reading the Psalms. They struggle to see their, uh, how applicable they are or this or that. Well, could I put before you that just praying them makes them applicable? Just reading God's word and taking it in, even if we don't know exactly how it fits into our life, makes it applicable. Maybe all it is is a psalm of adoration. Maybe all it is is an adoration for who God is and what he's done. Or maybe it leads us to a confession of sin if we're reading something like Psalm 51. Uh, The psalms can prompt us and do different things in our life. And another resource I want to share with you is uh, The Songs of Jesus by Tim Keller. Uh, he just takes different psalms. You can see it here. I mean, you can't see it because it's so small. But he takes different psalms here, parts of these psalms, writes a short little devotion and then a prayer. And, and it's a great way to start your day in prayer to the Lord, remembering him for who he is and what he's done and calling him back to his promises. Now, one of the things that I pray to the Lord every day is that I would remember the gospel that I would remember the gospel in my life, and that not only I would remember it, but the power of the Holy Spirit would work his gospel so deep into my heart that it actually affects and changes what I do that day. One of the things that I struggle with the most, and I need to remind of the Lord, and I want to remind him and ask him to do it for me, is that my identity would be rooted in Jesus Christ. If I'm honest before you guys, and I have been this whole time, and I'll continue to be, uh, I struggle with identity. If I could sum up my whole life story in a, in a sentence or a thought, it would be, I struggle in a search for identity. Who am I? What is my value? What is my worth? What is who I am? What is that built upon? And a hard thing I had a hard time connecting in high school and middle school was, was how does my faith intersect my everyday life? And I didn't know that I had an identity in Christ that could give me all these things that I need. That if my identity is in Jesus Christ, that I'm approved of by God of the universe right now. And so you know what that frees me from having to chase after? Your approval. And not in a jerky way. We know those guys, right? Like, I don't need anybody's approval. And then they desperately need it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a confidence in the Lord and the identity that he's given you that would free you from having to seek and be a people pleaser, which I do struggle with. So the identity in Jesus Christ is something that I need to pray for and be reminded of every day in a scripture that I love for this is Ephesians 1, 1 through 13. It says that we are blessed with all we need in Christ Jesus, that we are chosen, that we are loved, that we are adopted, that we are forgiven, that we are all these things that we can't do for ourselves. 
and that he has freely given me that identity in Christ, that I could go and live my daily life in such a way that I would be able to love God and love those around me without having to take things from them. And so it's incredibly important to pray and remember the promises of God and what he's wanting to do in our life. The last thing we see here in the prayer, the fifth thing, is asking favor with people. He asks for favor. It says, grant today to your servant, grant him mercy in the sight of this man who is the king. And so the last thing he prays for is for favor with the king. And I think this is something that we should pray for in our lives. And maybe something we don't think about a lot is before we go into that meeting and we're struggling and we're wondering what's going to happen. We need to pray for favor with the people that we're going to be meeting with, whatever it looks like in our lives. And so for here, he's asking specifically for favor, not just for himself, but favor that's going to benefit his people. He is asking for favor for the plan that God has put in his heart that's not just for the benefit of Nehemiah, but the benefit of his people and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. He's asking for favor, not for his sake, but for the sake of the name of God. He's asking to have favor with the king that he might provide the needs for the plan that God has put in his heart. And so we need to remember that. What, what plan has God put in your heart? What desires has he put there? Do we pray for favor in those desires and plans that we might be a benefit to the people around us, not just praying for all the things that we want and asking that God would bless it, even though there's not anything really wrong with that unless we do it for bad motives, but that we would really pray and seek and ask God to give us favor for the things he's put on our heart. Like if he's put on your heart to be a community group leader, I'm going to throw that out there. It's kind of selfish, I know. Uh, just talk to me after the service. I'm praying that God's put on that heart, your heart right now. But I, I'm praying favor with you right now that you will lead a community group. Uh, no, but seriously, do we think about that God's given us the spiritual thing that he wants us to do? Hey, I think he's calling me in my next step of leadership to be able to lead a group of people. I don't quite know what that looks like, you know, but I'm going to pray for favor with God and with people that he would bring that into a reality. And so we see him doing that. We're praying with favor for the king. So here's the amazing part of his prayer. Again, we just see one aspect of his prayer that he prayed over four months, and I'm sure it looked different at different times, and he prayed for different things. But there's no mention of praying over the action plan. Prayer is the action. Prayer is his action plan. And again, we'll see that Nehemiah is very prepared for the things that he's going to do. But the very first thing he does is to go to the Lord in prayer that he would bring about the actions that would change his heart, transform his character, remind him of who God is and what he's done, that he would be able to walk in the plans that he has for him. And we need to do the same thing. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you for who you are, that you are a great and awesome God that circumstances can't change that. The brokenness of this world might cloud that in our minds at times. But Lord, we go back to the truth of your word and who you say you are. That you are steadfast in love. You are covenant keeping. You love your sons and daughters and that you are seeking good for them. And that you are working and that you are moving even when we can't see it. Lord, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for the reality of the gospel in our lives, Lord, that you have forgiven us, you have adopted us, you lavish your love and your grace upon us in such a way that transforms us more and more into the likeness of your Son. 
So Lord, as we sing some songs here to close the service, would you speak to us? Would you speak to us areas of our prayer life that, that Lord, you want to invade and you want to change and you want to grow and that prayer is action in our lives. Prayer is action in our character, in our development, and ultimately we can't succeed in what you're calling us to do in this life without prayer in a relationship with you. So Lord, would you move in our hearts today where we need more adoration, where we need more confession, where we need to pray the scriptures to you and your promises and remind you of your faithfulness, or where we need to pray for favor with people and the things that you're calling us to do. Lord, would you speak to us in this time as we respond to your word? In Christ's name, amen.